In John 20, verse 19, we read, On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders. This is the first Easter, the first Easter night, and we find the disciples in a locked room because they are afraid. Today we continue in our study of fear, and we begin by recognizing, remembering, that the first Easter was marked by fear. We see Easter as a day of celebration and of joy, but in fact, that first Easter was marked by fear. And there are at least two aspects of the first Easter with regard to fear that I'd like us to consider today. The first is community, community and fear. We have affirmed in this series that we live in a culture of fear, but it is also a culture of disconnection. And as Scott Bader say, uh, says in his book, the two are often related. Another author observes, many people are literally on their own. Such social isolation enhances a sense of insecurity. Many of society's characteristic obsessions with health, safety, and security are the products of this experience and social isolation. So one could argue, in fact, that this disconnection reflects the anxiety that is found in our culture, or is it perhaps part of the cause of the anxiety? There's a certain paradox of living in the modern world, particularly among us as Americans, and that is that we prize individual achievement, while at the same time wanting, would we even say yearning, for a sense of communal connection. Many speak of the virtues of community, And yet the practical realities of our society make the experience of real community uncommon. Consider that we are more mobile than ever, which means that most of us live far from a network of extended family. We participate in a competitive economic system where your co-worker may well be the competition for the next promotion. We live in a culture in which traditions, narratives, and even communities have lost their moral authority. We imagine, as modern people, that our decisions should not be influenced by outside forces, things outside of ourselves. As a result, we find it harder and harder to distinguish between judgments and preferences. For the most part, in this society, we do not share a common moral vision. And as a result, our sense of disconnection and of isolation grows each day. There is a connection between the fact that we are obsessed with individual freedom while feeling more and more isolated. We want to be free as individuals, and as a result, we may in fact be free, but we are also more isolated from others. Lacking a sense of tradition and community, we float, as Bader Say puts it, in a sea of uncertainty that masquerades as the virtue of choice. How could one not be fearful and anxious when we lack the connection not only to our past and traditions, but even in our present, those who are around us? Put it another way, the absence of community, both the community of the dead those who have gone before us, the traditions that they've left for us, and the community of the living, those around us, add to our fear. 
because it becomes less and less clear what it looks like to live well. And without some definition to guide us, without some direction, we become anxious about our choices. You see, the absence of community also means that we have a sense that the resources are scarce. We can't support on others, we can't rely on the support of others in difficult times. As a result, as a people, we lack courage. We lack courage to the extent that we lack community. I would say that without community, courage is hard to come by. If we are to recover courageous living, we need to recover the kind of community capable of supporting that courageous living. As a community, we often bear risk together. And in doing so, it helps us to face fears that we would be reluctant to face alone. What is courage? What, is, what does it mean to be courageous? Courage is the capacity to do what is right and good in the face of fear. We become courageous when we learn to live for something that is more important than our own personal safety. But how do we know whether or not we are being courageous or just reckless and foolish? We've seen that fearlessness is not a virtue. It is, in fact, a vice. So let's begin here when we talk about being courageous by recognizing that it doesn't mean that you have no fear, that you are fearless, or that you ignore your fear. That's not what it means to be courageous. The courageous person recognizes danger, but refuses to allow fear to get in the way of doing what is right, what is good, and perhaps what is necessary. A courageous person should show prudence, that is, practical wisdom, in the face of danger. I think prudence is an important companion to courage. It helps us to discern the difference between being reckless and having courage. Not all risky behavior is, in fact, courageous, even when it is intended for the good of someone else. It doesn't necessarily make it courageous. There are risks that, in fact, we do not need to take, since our own lives, the lives of those we love, are gifts from God. And we are to value these gifts. We do not simply throw our lives away saying, I'm being courageous. Here is where community comes in. One of the things a Christian community can do for us is provide us a place to weigh judgment together about courageous action. The community, the church, ought to be a place of discernment so that I don't need to rely on my own personal judgments alone. I have people around me who love me and whom I love, and we can talk about these things and make decisions and judgments about what is the right thing to do. If we are to be courageous, our fears must be rightly formed. So courage requires the right amount of fear, not so little that we become reckless, and not so much that we become paralyzed and end up doing nothing at all. But how do we learn the virtue of courage? You see, um, a virtue is different than a rule or a principle. Um, Bader say makes a comparison that a virtue is like a musical score. It's on a piece of paper 
but it's not really doing any good until it is played. In the same way, a virtue, you might read about it, but it is not a virtue until it, in fact, is put into action. That is what courage is. We learn to be virtuous by seeing virtuous people do virtuous things. And that should be in the context of the congregation, in the context of community. One writer put it this way. Virtue cannot properly operate except when collectively possessed. Virtue cannot properly operate except when collectively possessed. I would say in many ways for us as Americans, this is counterintuitive because we see courage as something that belongs to the individual, the heroic person who is courageous. But in fact, if it is a virtue, then for it to be practiced, it must be collectively possessed. As Christians, we affirm that this means not just all of us who are alive now, the community, but those who came before us. And here we can learn from those who came before us, the martyrs, who embodied the most powerful witness to courage that we can imagine. They recognized that discipleship would require, would require, sorry, require risk, but they did not step back from it. As Scott Bader Say puts it, they live for something bigger than self-preservation so that the threat of death could not scare them into unfaithfulness. They were sustained by communities that not only taught them courage, but promised to tell their stories to future generations, assuring them that their sacrifice would not be forgotten. Beyond embodying and remembering courage, the church is also to be a community in which our fears can be spoken out loud, can be given voice. Sadly, too often the church is quite the opposite. It is a place where we feel we need to hide our fears. And we have to sort of dress ourselves up and make ourselves presentable to one another. So we hide our fears underneath a smile and maybe even a hug when in fact we are feeling great fear. In a culture that does not value vulnerability, does not admire it, the church can likewise be a place where vulnerability is seen and it is met without judgment or platitudes. That a person can in fact say, this is who I am, these are my fears, and not be judged. Or be told, this too will pass. That in fact they can be dealt with seriously. It is important for us to give words to our fears. As God's people we ought to exist as a gathering in which fears can be expressed honestly. Because we believe that they no longer are to control us. If you think about it, the church, the body of Christ is a place where through baptism we have already faced death, our greatest fear, and have seen it overcome. That's what Easter is all about. Paul wrote to the Romans, or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. 
So the church needs to be a place where we are not embarrassed to hear about the fears of others. We are not embarrassed to share our own fears with one another. By the way, there are times in the reading from the Psalms where we hear of the fears of the psalmist. In some ways, he gives voice and words to our fears and our anxieties. But the church is not only to be a place where we give voice to our fears, it is to be a place of shared risk and shared resources. This is what we find in the early church. In Acts chapter 2, all the believers were together and had everything in common, selling their possessions and goods they gave to anyone as he had need. That's in Acts 2. And in Acts chapter 4, there were no needy persons among them, we are told. What we find in the early church is an example of shared risks and shared resources that could be so helpful in overcoming fear. If someone knew that the Christian community, that the church was there, the fear of losing one's job, the fear of illness, the fear of an emergency might be overcome and the future faced with a certain courage because a believer would know my brothers and sisters are behind me and are standing with me. One writer tells us it is much easier to take the risk of loving someone when, when, when we know we are loved and cherished by another. And as we share risk and resources together in the congregation, as we love one another, I think it prepares us and enables us to do likewise with those who are outside the congregation. Let's be clear before moving on. There can be no solution to the problem of fear without the existence of communities capable of bearing fear together. We must do this together. And yet, it is, in fact, quite possible that a Christian community's life will not support or sustain courage, but rather work against it. And that's what we find on that first Easter. The disciples are there. They are a community of believers. They are the disciples of Jesus of Nazareth. And yet, they are filled with fear. Why did not that first group of believers, why were they not filled with courage that first Easter? Why were they hiding behind locked doors? Well, this brings us to the second aspect with regard to fear that I'd like us to consider. That is providence, God's providence in our fears. We are people of the book, and as a result, we read of God's provision for his people time and time again. A ram for Abraham to sacrifice in place of Isaac. Manna that was provided daily for Israel in the wilderness. The Holy Spirit given to a group of fearful disciples on Pentecost. In theological terms, we call this providence. We believe in providence, and yet living when and where we do, we find it more difficult to trust in God's providence than those who lived in earlier times. I would argue we view God's providence quite differently than people did before us. From the ancient church up through the time of the Reformation, and perhaps even a bit beyond, Christians encountered danger or threat every day. But they drew uh, strength from the belief that no matter what happened, God was still the king of history. God 
God's will could be seen in all that was going on, even if only darkly. And we should consider how difficult life was for them compared to our lives today. They did not deny that life was hard. Let me read to you a section from John Calvin, reflecting on the dangers of everyday life. Innumerable are the evils that beset human life. Innumerable, too, the deaths that threaten it. We need not go beyond ourselves, since our body is the receptacle of a thousand diseases. In fact, holds within itself and fosters the causes of diseases. A man cannot go about unburdened by many forms of his own destruction without drawing out a life enveloped, as it were, with death. For what else would you call it when he neither freezes nor sweats without danger? Now, wherever you turn, all things around you not only are hardly to be trusted, but almost openly menace and seem to threaten immediate death. Embark upon a ship, you are one step from death. Mount a horse, if one foot slips, your life is imperiled. Go through the streets, you are subject to as many dangers as there are tiles on the roofs. Amid these tribulations, must not man be more miserable since half alive in life, he weakly draws anxious and languid breath as if he had a sword perpetually hanging over his neck. Certainly sounds like material for a culture of fear. And yet, living when and where he did, Calvin found peace because he believed that nothing could happen apart from God's will. And so he continued writing after the passage I've just read. Yet when that light of divine providence has once shone upon a godly man, he is then relieved and set free not only from the extreme anxiety and fear that were pressing before, but from every care. That is, when you know that God in fact is in control, that he has a plan, it sets us free or should from our fears. For Calvin, we are set free from our anxiety and fear, not because we believe that God will protect us from all danger, witness the martyrs, but because we know that all that happens reflects God's will and serves God's plan. Consider what I just said. We know that all that happens reflects God's will and serves God's plan. Well, the things that happened in the 20th century have made such a position indefensible for many Christians. How can we say that the evils that happened in the 20th century are God's will? Why would God plan a world that included mass murder? While Calvin managed to draw comfort from his belief in a comprehensive divine plan, few today find such a belief comforting. What happened? Why do we think differently from the people of the Reformation? Well, let me see if I can explain it. In the 17th and 18th century, with the rise of modern science and historical studies, rather than attributing things to God's will, people came up with scientific explanations. And seeing patterns in history, they say, oh, this is why this happened. You have, for example, the classic work, The Rise and Fall of the Roman Empire. So that's sort of the way things go. Things rise and then they fall. So that's why these things happen. It's not because God was judging them. It wasn't because God was blessing them. That's why these things happen. And so it was felt that it's no longer necessary to appeal to God to make sense of what's going on in the world. What the Bible says, what tradition says, were called into question. 
What's interesting is as this was going on in the 17th and 18th century, providence or the doctrine of providence was not rejected or abandoned. In fact, if anything, it was intensified. And you see Christians sort of clinging to it as the explanation. But they did so in a way that was unhelpful. Christians felt that they needed to make belief in God reasonable in the age of reason. And so they pointed to nature and to human progress. And they said, this proves that there is an all-powerful, all-wise designer who is, in fact, in charge of everything. And so providence was rejected to a conviction that you can see it in nature alone. You can see it in human history. You don't need to read the Bible to know that God is a God of providence. Just look at history. Just look at science. This was a critical mistake. When Darwin came along, the divine plan was replaced by the plan of natural selection. And what we find in the church is an opting for an apologetic approach. That is, we are going to explain to you why Christianity makes sense rather than witness. We will, by God's grace, try to live out the truth of what God says in his word. What happened in this time was the loss of story. The stories of the Bible are now something that children are told in Sunday school, but certainly not not the fuel for sermons. That's what childrens do. They look at the story. We want philosophy. We want theology and doctrine. How are we to recover this doctrine of providence, a right understanding of providence? How can providence become a source of strength and courage in a culture of fear? Well, first of all, we have to shift. We have to change from trying to explain everything that happens into the world to interpreting what is going on in the world. In other words, we need to shift from a philosophic model in which we have the right concepts and and, uh, propositions, presuppositions, if you wish, to a literary model in which we try to get the story right. Providence has at its heart the conviction that our lives and our world constitute a coherent story. It is a drama in which God and his creation together are driving a story to its proper conclusion. Providence is the conviction that through all things, God's story cannot be lost. A woman, the woman who wrote uh, out of Africa, Isaac Denison once said, all sorrows can be born if you put them into a story. You see, story, narrative, gives form to suffering. If we do not have a story, then what we have is fragmentation. And as Christians, if we take a primarily apologetic approach, we're running around trying to explain every little bit of the fragmented story. When in fact we should be telling the story. This is what God is doing in human history. We should think in terms of story, the narrative of God's working in history. To do this, rather than thinking in terms of propositions, you know, trying to explain, as I've said, everything that God is doing, we might in fact say this is God's story. 
begins in the beginning when God created the heavens and the earth. At this point, you might be thinking or wondering, okay, Damon, you've mentioned two aspects, community and providence as seen in story. But did, in fact, the disciples that first Easter, did they not have both of these? And yet they were afraid. What's up? What are we to make of this? At this point, I'd have you turn to Luke chapter 24. The story of the two disciples that first Easter on the road to Emmaus. Listen, if you would, as I read um, verses 13 to 32 of Luke 24. Now that same day, this is Easter, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them named Cleopas asked him, Are you only a visitor to Jerusalem and do not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things, he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but they didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. He said to them, how foolish you are and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus acted as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, strongly, stay with us, for it is nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us when he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? It's an amazing story, and it's a passage we've looked at in the past. It tells us of two disciples, Cleopas and Mary, his wife, the two disciples, They're walking from Jerusalem to Emmaus and having a rather intense theological discussion. They're trying to make sense of what has happened in the past few days. And while they are talking, Jesus joins them. They're kept from recognizing him. And when he asks them what they were talking about, Cleopas tells Jesus the story of Jesus. But the story did not go as they thought it would. And that is what threw them. We had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. What Jesus does at that point is he corrects their version of the story. 
he said to them, How foolish you are, and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Unlike modern people, and that includes us, they did think in terms of story. They were thinking in terms of story, but they got the story wrong. This is what led to their fear. They thought they knew how the story was going and it went in a different direction. And this led to their fear. This is why the disciples were behind locked doors for fear of the Jews. Although they were a believing community, they were still afraid. Although they thought in terms of story, they were still afraid. And yet, in 50 days on Pentecost, we find a courageous group proclaiming that Jesus has been raised from the dead and that God has made him both Lord and Christ. What happened? Certainly, the work of the Spirit had something to do with that. But also, I think the two things that we've been talking about with regard to fear community of believers and a sense of providence as story. They came to see God's work, God's story in the right way, and they shared the story with one another. And that's why on the day of Pentecost, they are together in the upper room praying. There is a sense of community. They are talking to one another and praying with one another. And the 40 days in which Jesus was with them after his resurrection, he helped them get the story right. Many people today fear that their lives have no purpose, no goal beyond whatever they, choose, they may choose at a given moment. They fear that all their individual choices may not add up to much when everything is said and done. People have, they feel a sense of a burden of, of giving their lives meaning. But oftentimes fear that all that you have is in fact a series of disconnected choices. I mentioned this before, but very much like many music videos, which seem incoherent, they seem to reflect how people view their lives. Just disconnected choices. And there's no story, there's no purpose, no narrative to sort of tie it all together. Providence is a way of narrating the fact that God has given the world a story, and we are participating in that story. That means I don't have to give my life meaning or purpose. God has already done that. I'm a part of God's story. I'm part of God's people. And God is bringing the story. He will one day to a conclusion. But right now, I may not understand what's happening in this particular instant or in this particular event. But I don't need to. What I need to know is that God is in fact telling a story. In this way, we are freed from the fear that comes from having to write our own story. We are invited to continue the story that enacts God's drama of providence. We learned yesterday of Edith Schaefer's passing. And among her books is a book entitled Tapestry, The Life and Times of Francis and Edith Schaefer. And the image that she uses, the tapestry, is of a piece of cloth in which you embroider a design or a picture. And from the front, it is something, it's something of, of beauty. But if you look at, 
it from behind where the knots are, it, it doesn't look quite as attractive. And oftentimes we're looking at the back side of the picture. We, don't, we can't see the front side because it, the picture is not finished yet. We are part of God's ongoing tapestry. And she wrote this in her book. The idea being that each of our lives is a thread. You are a thread and I am a thread. We affect each other's ideas, physical beings, spiritual understanding or material possessions or as we influence each other's attitudes, creativity, courage, interestingly, determination to keep on, moods, priorities, understanding spirituality, or understanding spiritually, intellectually, emotionally. We are being woven together threads that are important to a pattern, the pattern of the history of our lifetimes. This is the story of God's providence. I think we may have lost sight of that. This past week, um, on a talk show, Hugh Hewitt, uh, he interviewed N.T. Wright, a former bishop of Durham, for three hours um, with regard to his new book. Part of the exchange went this way, and I found it interesting. Hugh Hewitt says, Now I wonder how you maintain your hopefulness and your hope of the forgiveness against the backdrop of chemical weapons being used in Syria, of a North Korean despot who has starved his own people, of massive, just terrible things around the world, almost a crescendoing of evil, and the almost near certainty that nuclear weapons will be used, if not in our lifetimes, then shortly thereafter. Bishop Wright, how do you maintain that? He answers, my hope is not built on observation of stuff that is going on in the world at the moment. My hope is built firmly on the fact that three days after he was crucified, Jesus of Nazareth rose again, bodily, from the dead. That is the basis of everything. I'm neither an optimist nor a pessimist. I simply believe that Jesus rose again, and that what God did for Jesus at Easter, God will do for all his people at the end. And God will actually do for the whole of creation at the end. This is the story. The story of God's providence. On this Easter Sunday, we, like the disciples, may in fact be filled with fear. We certainly find ourselves living in a culture of fear. And while our fears may be quite different than those that the disciples were experiencing, we should consider the place of community and story. In terms of community, we can, by God's grace, develop the virtue of courage together, not individually, but together. And it is in story that we can be reminded that God has a purpose. We may not understand or comprehend particular events that happen in our lives. Dreadful things may happen to us. And as a pastor, oftentimes I'm called upon to explain why these things happened. I cannot. But what I can say is that God has a purpose. God has a story and we are a part of that story. And we should embrace that. Living as the people of God, living in community, may we encourage one another, may we support one another, 
And may we learn courage together. Let's pray together. Our Father, living when and where we do, the community seems almost impossible. And for many people, not really desired. And living when and where we do, our, our view of providence has become skewed. Rather than thinking in terms of story, we think of propositions, explanations. And certainly those have validity. But we need to recover, as we find in Scripture, the place of story. And understand that like the disciples, we may get the story wrong at times. It doesn't invalidate your story. It doesn't change it. But may we, as your people, as a congregation... Encourage one another. Speak our fears to one another. Take risks together. Be resources for each other. So that one need not fear losing a job. Or losing a home. Or losing one's health. Because he or she knows that God's people will stand beside them. In many ways, like the disciples at first Easter, figuratively, we're behind locked doors because of fear. Having learned a story of redemption and the place of community, by your grace, may we unlock those doors and be a people who are not swallowed up by fear like the culture around us, who by your grace, are able to display the virtue of courage. I ask that in the days to come we would think about these things and meditate on them. And more than that, put them into practice. I thank you for this Easter Sunday that we can come together to worship you. To be reminded that you raised Jesus from the dead and one day you will do the same for us. Fill our hearts with joy. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.